Rusty Quill presents. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Season 2, Episode 6, In Here, Out There. This is Professor Ryan of Bunker A12. This is a public broadcast to any survivors out there. Before I begin, please be aware that I advise listener discretion going forward as some of the content of this broadcast can be unsettling or disturbing. Welcome back, my friends. Last time I promised to return with news of Claire as soon as I could, and I'm glad to say that I have just that. She for now, at least, is safe. I received a message from her later in the same evening of the previous broadcast and was able to record her transmission. I'd like to share that with you now, in fact. So you want the listeners to know what happened? Aye, and I've just set up the recording as well, Claire, so we can share it when we're able. I just, I feel as though whatever you've been through, if others know what's going on out there, if they know what they might be able to do, it could help. Well, I can't say I did anything special, but... Well, it's late and I'm sure I'm alone now, so I don't see how a little bedtime story could go wrong. Let's see, uh, well, obviously it started when I saw those people outside that store a while back. You know, the whole sacrificial, yeah, I don't really need to go into any more of that, do I? Well... After I'd left that area, I thought I was done with them. Turns out, they weren't done with me. I don't know whether they followed me from there, or more likely it was the person I knocked out. But they found me, either way. I was just going through the last village before Ralford. There's not really much else after that place before the observatory, so I wanted to stock up as best I could. And of course... That's when they chose to try and grab me. It was clear right away that they didn't want to kill me, which, to be honest, made it worse. I just couldn't help but imagine what they were going to do to me. What they'd sacrifice me to if they caught me. 
It was in an old village house. One of those that still has the original beams sticking out of the ceiling. I was just getting the last of some decent canned food out of the pantry, and I heard the latch on the front door. It has one of those old-style barn doors, the ones that separate, you know? So they're never quiet, no matter how hard you try. I suppose the blessing of there being pretty much no one around is that you can hear everything around you. The downside being that every little noise makes you jump. I'm glad it did in this case. I immediately grabbed a knife from the cutting block and threw my bag back on. Looking back, it was a stupid idea to grab the knife, really. I walked over to the kitchen door and stopped to listen. I could faintly hear the sound of someone whispering. I can still hear them so clearly. Their voice was... It was husky, like they were ill or damaged in some way. Stay on the door and snatch her when she runs out. They wanted me to run, Ryan. They wanted to chase me. I was not having some sick fuckers chasing me. Not today, not ever. I gripped the knife tightly and crept out of the kitchen. Through the banister on the stairs, I could see one of them waiting by the door. I had to resist the urge to stare at her for longer than I did. I just wanted to take a look at what kind of person would be like this. Her hair was matted to her head and seemed to end in some sort of braid that came over her shoulder. Though what was braided into it, I'd hate to guess. They were off-white and jagged. She wasn't wearing anything on her torso. It was just smeared gray and rust orange in some sort of pattern. It reached up around her neck and crept across the lower half of her face. The markings were like... Like something gripping her body. Around her waist, there just seemed to be a tattered skirt with a thick utility belt over the top. The things that hung on that belt were hideous. And I don't mean hideous like body parts or sick trinkets. I mean the makeshift weapons. These weren't meant for killing quickly. They were meant for maiming and goring things. People. They were meant for a slow death. I could feel my heart creeping into my throat. So loud, it was pounding my ears. I almost kidded myself for a second that they might hear it. Just before I ducked back down, I noticed something about her. The woman by the door? She looked on edge, uncomfortable, fidgety. Someone like her wasn't going to wait by the door, not for long, anyway. I'd already been in the house a while, so I found somewhere to hide. The downstairs bathroom had a storage closet in there. I knew I could fit in if I moved some of the towels out of the way. As quietly as I could, I squeezed into that gap. I stayed in there for about 15 minutes before I heard footsteps heading upstairs. 
I listened closely and tried to pick out whether it was multiple sets or just the one. As far as I could tell, there were only two of them in there with me. I knew I'd have to take this chance sooner rather than later. That's when I radioed you. I thought if I was going to do this, I had to let you know. For everything you've done for me, I had to let you know. Which, of course... Well, you know how that played out. After a close call with someone walking past, they came back and flung the door to my hiding space open. The way her face lit up when she saw me. Her dark, sunken eyes, with a dull shine that matched her matted hair, stared directly at me. I immediately lunged forward with the knife in my right hand. There wasn't a chance in hell I was letting this bitch do anything to me. She tried to grab my hand before it got to her body and redirected the knife toward me. The power of her grip around my arm took me by surprise, and the knife slashed across my opposite forearm. I screamed as a white, hot pain shot down my arm. Refusing to let up, I turned my left shoulder toward her and pushed against the floor and the doorframe as hard as I could. I sent both of us flying across the room toward the sink. There was a loud thud as she slumped to the ground. I thought, at first, she'd somehow hit her head and that had knocked her out. But soon I felt this sickeningly warm, wet feeling around my hand. The one that was holding the knife. I don't remember doing that. I don't even remember thinking to do that. I was just lashing out, fighting as best as I could not to be on the receiving end of one of those things on her belt. And there she was just in a growing pool of blood. For a few seconds, I forgot I was still holding the knife. I was just staring at her in shock. When I finally snapped out of it, I dragged my bag out of the closet, radioed you, and bolted for the door. I heard the other one barreling down the stairs after me with this haunting, howling call that sounded so animalistic, but so human at the same time. I didn't for a second dare to look back. I just ran and ran until I could feel my muscles burning and every breath felt like fire. With blood still staining my right hand and pouring down my left, my, I did everything I could think of to disguise which way I was going. I stopped for a moment knowing that I need to stop the bleeding from my arm, at least with something temporary. I didn't fight through all that to be finished off by blood loss. After doing the best I could, I tried to calm myself down. I tried to quiet my panic so I could focus, so I could listen. There was something there, something on the edge of my hearing. I just couldn't make out what it was. Then, like a dawning realization, it came into focus. It wasn't just a singular sound. 
It was an awful mix of a sputtering car engine and the screams of someone in absolute agony. I don't know whether it was one of them or they'd somehow found someone else hiding in that village. I know it's selfish and wrong, but I felt relieved. I feel sick with myself saying this, but I felt complete relief that they were distracted. That whatever had happened, their focus wasn't on me anymore. And as I listened, my heart slowed. And my head stopped pulsing, and I heard the sound change and grow more and more distant, and my relief grew. And my body eased. There was still blood staining my hand when I could no longer walk and had to find somewhere to stop. I'd made it to a nature reserve. It's where I am now. I'm up on this bank with a bench at the top that's carved like a bird with outstretched wings. It feels almost protective. The way its eyes are facing out across the view. The, the view. That's the reason I chose this place. From up here, you can see the whole surrounding area. Especially the enormous radio telescope at Ralford. It's, it's nice to finally see it. To know I'm close and it doesn't look damaged. Not from here, anyway. At first it was so quiet up here, but in the early evening before I radioed you, I started to hear birds singing. I could hear birds, Ryan. I can't remember the last time that happened. It was so nice not to feel alone for once. I know they want nothing to do with me, but hearing them was enough. Then I realized why I couldn't hear them before. They stopped singing because of me. Because they heard my footsteps and got scared. That's when I knew I'd chosen a good spot. I had my own guardians. I guess the bird bench wasn't just a metaphor after all. Once I got settled and treated my wounds, I figured out that if I lay below the bench in my sleeping bag, no one from below or nearby could see me. But if I knelt just in front of it, I could see enough around me to know if someone was coming long before they made it to me. I can't say I feel completely safe here, but it's about as good as it gets, and the birds are still singing, so I know it's going to be okay. Are you sure your wounds are clean and bandaged properly, Claire? <sighs> yes, Ryan. I know I lost a lot of my memories, but I still know a few things. I'll be fine. I'm just making sure you've been through an awful lot. <sighs> Which is exactly why I'm heading to sleep for the night, while the birds are still chirping away. Yes, you should sleep while you can, Claire. I'm, I'm sorry I put you through this. Are you kidding me, Ryan? I chose this. You're the one who tried to stop me, don't you remember? Look... Something worse could have happened if I hadn't been heading toward Ralford. We will never know either way. But we do know that I was going to be out here regardless, so don't go apologizing to me. I chose this, okay? If you insist. I'll let you rest, shall I? I'll contact you in the morning. I should be at Ralford soon. Claire out. As I know, you'll be burning with questions, survivors. Claire made it safely through the night and is making her way toward the observatory as we speak. 
I'm feeling more hopeful now than ever that she could find something there that will boost our research into the awful situation we all find ourselves in. Until then, however, we shall continue to review what we have of Roman and Elliot's story. Our next piece is from Elliot's journal, written on their first night in A7. He smells of old alcohol. The smell of it always makes me feel sick. The morning following a teenage house party was always the worst. The smell of old, cheap beer is revolting. I suppose, at least in Jim's case, it's old whiskey, so it's not as bad as cheap beer. Well, it wouldn't be that bad if the vinegary hint to it didn't bring back some hideous memories of wading through the woods at night searching for Roman, only to find him in a mess of tendrils. I shouldn't speak too badly of him, really. Jim, that is. He actually seems like a pretty decent guy. A bit rough around the edges. Seems like he's had things his way most of his life. Not in a sort of privileged way, more a natural leader sort of way. Sometimes I feel like for all the times he says, Son, or listen here. It's from years of talking down to someone else. A child, a work colleague. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's because I can't remember the last time I saw another same person. I'm just afraid that this guy is going to turn out to be another madman like the rest. The cafeteria that he showed has really made me feel uncomfortable. Have you ever seen those pictures of Chernobyl? You know the ones I mean, where everything is just abandoned, like it was dropped and left, never to be touched again. That's how that room felt. That's how it looked. Everything has just been left there, untouched, unfinished, abandoned. And on top of all that, it had a very strong quarantine vibe. It's hard to explain. Like when you know something is dangerous but it doesn't look it. Not until someone tells you it is. The closest thing I can think of is when Roman and I used to play in the shed in the garden when we were kids. And it wasn't until we were older that our parents found out it was made of asbestos. Suddenly where you could play became this monolith of foreboding. All the positive memories of that place were desecrated by the thought of those sharp splintering shards. Invisibly there. No idea whether you breathed any in. No way of knowing. I imagine that's how Jim feels about the cafeteria. In fact, I know it is. The way he looked at it all and said he'd never go any further than that doorway. That was his rule. And ain't nobody telling me otherwise, he'd say, (laughs) I'm sure. I feel exactly how I thought I would in here. Trapped. I don't feel like we found safety. Or like we finally got a sanctuary to rest in. I just feel trapped, cornered. I can't stop thinking about the things that we've heard on our way through the tunnels to get to this auxiliary bunker. And the things that I know are outside. Out in the world. All around us. And all I can think of is how the things outside don't care about our flimsy human blast doors or our bunkers because from everything I've seen, they don't play by our rules. They don't give a damn about our rules. Not. One. Bit. That's why I'm missing two fingers. Why Roman can't remember being hypnotised into the woods. Why he had tendrils coming out from under his fingernails. Jesus, just riding that makes me feel sick. I still can't even bear to look at his hands now. I'm scared about tomorrow. I listened back to the recording we made earlier and it was strange. 
Roman seemed so different in the recording than he did in reality. He was speaking as though things were generally getting better, as though he was glad to be here, but when I think back to that moment, he wasn't really like that. Not in his body language, anyway. His usual confident bravado was replaced by an inwardly turned shell, his shoulders hunched, expressions lacking, eyes dull. He was drinking a lot. And in a way, I don't blame him. I know it's no way to deal with grief or problems, but I can see why he did it. He's fast asleep now, but it's not a restful one. I can tell. He's asleep because he passed out, not because he chose to be. But that's why I'm scared for tomorrow. I can see it going one of two ways. Either he wakes up and acts like we're safe and finds more to drink, or he wakes up feeling like absolute crap and is a shell of who he normally is and does absolutely nothing. And with either one of those options, we go nowhere. But the thing is, we have to. We have to go somewhere. I'm going to have to do some serious talking him out of this. I really need him to see the hope in finding his family. If he doesn't have that, I don't know what else he'll fight for. Selfishly, I'm I'm grateful I don't have any other family other than Roman. It's not that I don't care about them or him. I do. But my distance allows me to be more realistic about the situation. They could still be alive, but honestly... Honestly, the chances are low. I can't deny that. If I think logically about how many people are missing... The chances of them not being part of that are incredibly low. Regardless, though, we have to keep moving. I mean, Jim's nice enough, yeah? Don't get me wrong. We could probably ride out the next few months here, no bother, providing nothing out there finds us. But if we're here, we're doing nothing. We'd just be cattle waiting to be slaughtered. We'd be sitting here complaining about how terrible things are about how scary everything is, how fucked up it is, but doing nothing about it. I can't be that person right now. I can't sit by and let this happen to me and do nothing. When I think about myself at the end of the world, which, let's face it, this may as well be it, if it isn't already, I don't want to be the one cowering in the corner. As much as that's what my whole body is telling me to do, I cannot be that person. I've spent far too much of my life letting things just be. Letting idiots bully me as a child, letting managers think they have complete control over my life, letting people push me around, being scared and worried about every little thing that might go wrong. I cannot, at the end of all this, at the end of whatever anyone considers normal, continue being that person. I have to do something. I have to find out more. Oh well, let's face it die trying. Tomorrow, I'm going to ask Jim about that broadcast he's been listening to. Find out what else he knows about all this. It pains me, survivors, to not know the location of Roman's family. I know I've only had the privilege of meeting Claire, but I feel as though through listening to all of their accounts that we've come to know the brothers quite well and seeing them, especially Roman, suffer so much. It's becoming hard. We'll continue with the brothers' experiences in Bunker A7. Um, quite a bit, actually. It's all digital, so it stores quite a lot. Originally, Roman got it to help him remember the camping trip, so he could, like, mentally revisit it, I suppose. 
But now, well, now it sort of helps us cope with what's happening. I know that we're leaving behind a record should, well, should anything happen to us. That's a mighty interesting way to go about things, you know? I mean, it sounds to me like you're almost expecting to die. <laughs> um, no, uh, not not quite, but I, I suppose I see what you mean. It's a coping mechanism more than anything else, Jim. So, um, these recordings anyway, they always start the same? Yep, just like I said. Around eight in the evening, there'll be some static coming through, and then shortly after, Ryan does his usual introductions and shares some of his thoughts on things. Sometimes it's something people in A12 have told him. Other times it's just a message of hope. Depends, really. On? Say what, boy? Sorry, what does it depend on? Oh, I don't know. Whatever he's got going on, I suppose. It seems like there's a whole bunch of people in A12, and they've got a bit of a community dynamic to work out, should we say. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if separating the supplies has been a bit of a problem, to be fair. Yep. That was the case here, too. At least from what I saw of things. Of course, now I couldn't eat all this stuff in a lifetime, even if I wanted to. It must be lonely here. Sorry. Sorry, you, you probably didn't want to hear that. Nah, it's alright, son. You're right. It's mighty lonely in the old A7, but I got my broadcasts and my whiskey, and, well, I might just start keeping a journal like you, boy. <laughs> oh, um, thanks, I think. So so you don't think it's stupid? What? Hell no. I think it's a damn fine thing you got going there. Hell, some of the people here before wrote letters to their loved ones and things like that. It was a kind of grieving exercise, you know what I mean? Really? What happened to them? <laughs> they were all kept in a box in one of those empty rooms. Everyone made a sort of remembrance shrine there. Somewhere people go and think about. Well, yeah, you catch my drift. And are they still there? Meant to be kept there till it was all over. The idea that once we could head back outside, we'd find our loved ones and give them the letters. Man, that's heartbreaking. I'm... I'm sorry, Jim. Ah, don't worry yourself, son. Didn't go right in one myself. I'd... I'd like to... Maybe... Oh, hey now, here we go. Oh. Wait, is this... is this it? Good evening, survivors. My name is Professor Ryan. I'm currently held up in Bunker A-12 after following emergency procedures to take shelter in government bunkers. This broadcast is to anyone and everyone out there. If you're listening to this, I hope you're safe. Wherever you are. As we've discussed before, the horrors of the outside world are complex and almost impossible to define at the moment. However, it is my belief that we can triumph over this darkness and find ourselves in the light of the sun once more. And for those of you who are still wandering the seemingly empty streets of England or wherever you may be, please find shelter wherever you can. There is still plenty of space in A12. Jim, how far away is A12? It's with great sadness today that I must inform you of the passing of one of our engineers. Her name was Matilda Scott and... She was a much-loved and valued member of our community in A12. I must warn you, those of you who are listening, that the events I'm about to describe may be upsetting. Matilda was one of our designated engineers at Bunker A12, tasked with repairing both the internal and external fittings where possible. 
She was part of a highly skilled team that worked tirelessly to keep us safe. However, she wasn't just a civil servant doing her job. She was a much-loved friend of many here. The awful incident took place whilst on external routine maintenance of the solar panels. It seems as though whatever affliction has struck the land, panels seem to be suffering more than was to be expected. When they returned back without her, we knew the worst had happened. I shall read to you now the report oh, her wrote. I'm sorry, Elliot, but I can't listen to this. Oh, I, that's all right. Might I ask why? <sighs> Look, I, I, I'm a bunker engineer. I was assigned to... God damn it. I was assigned to A-12. That's where I'm supposed to be right now, helping out. That's why I listened to Ryan's broadcast so much. I, I didn't say anything before because I didn't want you thinking I abandoned my duties or something. Jesus. Jim, you said it yourself. You were on leave. That's not your fault. Any one of your team could have been away. No one could have predicted this. I knew her. Matilda Scott, I knew her. And a damn fine woman she was as well. I, I mean, sure, there were engineers more skilled than her, quicker too, perhaps, but there's no chance in hell you'd find a kinder, more considerate one among us. She... God damn it, Elliot, she was an absolute saint. I thought... I tried not to let it get to me when he first said it, but... It's too much. It's just too damn much, ain't it? What is going on out there, Elliot? That's what I aim to find out. You... you do? Yeah, I, um... I've thought about it a lot. I'm... I'm going to A12, and I'm going to find out what I can on the way. You? But, but what about your brother? Well, I'm going to try and do my best to convince him. Good luck with that, boy. You should come too. Oh. I, I mean, I know it's messed up out there, Jim, but... Well... What else is there? Listen, I I don't think I could go back to A12. Not after knowing that material. But Jim, you could be with your old team. And how the hell am I going to look them in the eye knowing that if I had been there, that Matilda might still be with us, huh? But I... Uh, I'm sorry, Jim. I, I just... I just thought... Yeah, well, you thought wrong. Jim. Jim, I'm... <clears throat> I'm sorry. I I had no idea that Jim was designated to Bunker A-12. I mean, I can't say that I've ever heard the engineers here speak of a missing team member or, or anything to that effect. But I suppose there would be little reason for me to know something like that. I do remember Matilda, though. Jim's, Jim's right. She was nothing but a delight to be around and is still sorely missed by the people of A-12. It's been a few months since that happened, and so I'm curious to know what happened to Elliot's plan to head here. We could soon be reaching the point where Claire comes into possession of their recordings. Seems as though we'll have to save such things for another time. As always, the power is limited, and there are other matters that require my attention. Until next time, survivors, don't wander in the dark. Survivors, just one last message from me. If you'd like to support us here at Bunker A12, to help us keep sharing the stories of our shattered world with you, then please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wake of corrosion. There are plenty of extra insights available there, as well as letters to shadows, 
a monthly series of additional stories from other survivors like yourselves. Any contributions will be hugely beneficial to help keep us from wandering in the dark. Before the credits, I'd like to give a shout out to our very generous Patreon subscribers at the A12 resident tier and above. Indike, Laurel, Nath, Paul, Trace, AJ Pumpkin, Austin Danger, and Twiglets. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. For news and updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Wake of Corrosion. Wake of Corrosion was written, directed, and produced by Sean Pellington, with voice acting from Kieran Walsh as Professor Ryan, Lee Pellington as Roman, Sean Pellington as Elliot, Brianne Leeson as Claire, Harlan Guthrie as Jim. Title and credits read by Adele Cliff. Our introduction theme, Shadowlands 5, Antichamber, and outro theme, Phantasm, were created by Kevin MacLeod, sourced from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. Both pieces have been reduced from their originals with fade-out, added voiceover, and radiostatic effects. Morse Code SFX, courtesy of Stephen C. Phillips of morsecode.world. All other sound effects are self-recorded from soundsnap.com or zapsplat.com. For our full list of credits, please visit the website in our show notes. Thank you again for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.